Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Tonight, straight from the source, Donald Trump's fourth surrender could happen just hours after the first Republican debate, which we are now learning tonight he is expected to skip. Plus, Jack Smith, you might want to call your office. CNN has new video that now places one of Trump's co-defendants at the Capitol on January the 6th. Is that why the alleged mastermind of the fake electors plot pleaded the fifth to Congress? And the West Coast tonight bracing for the impact of Hurricane Hillary. Forecasters fear that that Category 4 storm that you see there could unleash a year's worth of rain in a single day. I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. Only one week left to surrender from now. Actually, a little less than that since the deadline is noon next Friday. Tonight, we are hearing from sources that Donald Trump is not expected to do so until next Thursday or next Friday, that deadline day. And while he will show up to be arrested a fourth time because he has to, we have now learned that he is likely going to be a no-show at the first Republican debate next Wednesday night. With Trump, of course, there is always the caveat that he could change his mind. But I am told that he must let the Republican National Committee know whether or not he is going to, in fact, be on that stage in Milwaukee by Monday night at 9 p.m. Multiple sources familiar with Trump's plans tell CNN that he has basically made up his mind and he does not plan to be there. Instead, he is expected to sit for an interview with Tucker Carlson that night, snubbing the network that is hosting the debate and, of course, fired Tucker Carlson. It would not only be a snub to Fox News, though, but also to the Republican National Committee, which is holding the debate. The chairwoman, Ronna McDaniel, personally appealed to Trump to come. Fox executives did, too. They actually went to Bedminster, his golf club, to lobby him to go. So far, we do know who will be there on Wednesday night. Eight candidates have met the RNC's polling and donor requirements to qualify for that stage. And we should have a pretty good idea by Monday night at this hour who is officially in and who is officially out. That is by the time the GOP candidates must deliver their signed loyalty pledges to support whoever it is as the eventual nominee. We should note Mike Pence's campaign says that he signed it today. Our first guest says he has just met the polling threshold as well. Let's go straight to the source. Miami's mayor and Republican presidential candidate Francis Suarez. Mayor, thank you for being here. You say that you have qualified to get on that debate stage on Wednesday night. The RNC, I should note, says that you have not yet qualified Are you sure you're going to be there Wednesday? Yeah, I'm sure I'm going to be there on Wednesday. We've been uh, having conversations back and forth. They've never done this before. We've never done this before. Uh, And we are sort of crossing our T's and going through the process. For example, uh, we've shown them that we've reached uh, the the donor threshold by having, I think, 42,000 or so donations. But uh, understandably, they need to audit that. So there's a process uh, for them to audit that. Uh, we've sent them just tonight a couple of polls, including one uh, by Kaplan Strategies, where we're actually at 2% uh, 
um, which would meet the national polls, they're certifying that as well. And so it's a process. We understand it's a process. Uh, we did sign the loyalty pledge, and we expect and hope uh, that very, very shortly, uh, in hopefully the next 24, 48 hours, but certainly by Monday, we'll know uh, for certain. We're planning on it. We've booked hotel reservations. We're inviting people. Uh, we have a, a bunch of guests coming up from Miami. It's going to be to be a wonderful opportunity to introduce myself to the nation. Okay, so you're I'm confident having, having an opportunity to do so right now. And you're confident, Mayor, that the polling will be there because you know, we look at the RNC's requirements and CNN's reporting on these polls is that you've hit one percent in one qualifying national poll, you've hit one qualifying state poll, but you need one more of each to get on that stage. Are you confident you're going to have those numbers? We we are we are. We sent them a poll from Kaplan Strategies tonight. That's a two percent poll. Um, so we think that will qualify. They have, uh, they're in the process of certifying it. They actually, they go through and, and sort of scrape it to make sure that it meets all of their requirements. And then, um, you know, there's, a, there's other polls that have been um, already performed, including one that was not paid by another camp, uh, camp's campaign, but it's a poll that they've used that they're also uh, considering certifying. And then we believe that there'll be more polls between now and Monday that will also certify it. Okay, so, but you haven't actually gotten that number yet to where the RNC says, yes, you've made it. Yeah, they, they, they have not yet given me sort of that, that, that final certification. And, okay. uh, you know, there's sort of a back and forth, like I said, and it's a, you know, it's a process that neither we nor they have ever done before. So we're, we're following it. We're diligent with them. They're being very responsive and we're hopeful to have that sort of seal of approval certification very shortly. Okay, so we'll see if you get that. You say you feel confident that you will. If you were on that debate stage on Wednesday night, you know, the governor of your home state of Florida has been advised to to defend Donald Trump if he gets attacked on Wednesday night. This is what former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie had to say about that. If he thinks he's going to get on the stage to defend Donald Trump on Wednesday night, then he should do Donald Trump a favor and do our party a favor. Come back to Tallahassee endorse Donald Trump and get the hell out of the race. What do you you make of that? Do you agree that if DeSantis is defending Trump at the debate, that he shouldn't really be at the debate, he shouldn't be in this race? Look, anyone who's going to be in the debate talking about another candidate shouldn't be in the debate. You should be focusing on your vision for America. And what we've seen from the governor's campaign in this leaked memo um, is his desire to attack certain people a certain number of times or compliment people a certain number of times. Uh, in fact, uh, his uh, spokesman, who has sort of an alter ego, or ego, sorry, alter ego Twitter account, put out you know a, a false uh, a statement about my campaign and about my voting record. Uh, and it seems like they're not even reading their own Oppo research, which they've paid God knows how much money for in a hundred fifty million dollar campaign where they're, you know, hiring, you know, a ton of staff, Uh, they're not even reading their own Oppo research uh, because in the first page of their own Oppo research, it shows that I voted for a Republican in 2016 and 2020, and yet they continue to say that. So they're a campaign that's struggling to tread water. uh, But meanwhile, we're we're growing, right? We went from 1% to 2% in the latest national poll. So we're excited about the opportunity to really uh, tell the country who we are, introduce ourselves, connect uh, with the country, uh, talk about my policies, but also let them, you know, get them to know who I am as from a personality perspective and also why I have the right profile uh, to gain, uh, you know, an advantage in the in the contest in 2024 and get voters from the Hispanic community, get voters that are young voters that we lost by 26 points yeah. uh, to Joe so Biden, who's, like you know, it, I've said before, not the... It sounds like, Mayor, that you don't think it is your job to defend Donald Trump on Wednesday night if he's attacked on that stage and he's not there. 
No, I don't think I don't think it's anybody's job. I think you know the the, the former president does a f- fine job defending himself, and he's going to do what he's going to do. Our job as candidates is to convince the American people that we are the right alternative. The American people have a choice right now. What it looks like, uh, even though you see polls that say otherwise, is that we're going to have a repeat of the 2020 election if nothing changes. My job is to inspire people to give them a hope for a positive tomorrow based on who I am, based on what I've accomplished, and based on uh, you know, my ability to, to, to demonstrate to them that I can win the election and govern the country. That's what we should be focusing on, not, not anyone else, to be and honest. And just to be clear, you've said those who don't make the stage should drop out. That means even if you're one of those people, right? Yeah, I, I do agree with that. I think, okay. look, and, and it goes beyond just this one debate, right? I think, you know, uh, hopefully I'll make the debate. I feel very confident that I will. I feel confident that once given the opportunity to introduce myself to the country, I'm going to perform well, which will give me an opportunity to make the next debate stage and continue okay, the Mr. conversation. Mayor, we'll you see. You know, one of the things... That, well, let me just quickly get in here because you said that you have signed that loyalty pledge. You, you've already signed it, even though you're waiting on them to officially say yeah. that, that you can get in that race. You didn't vote for Trump in 2016. You didn't vote for him in 2020. So why... As a result of this pledge, would you endorse him in 2024? Well, you're presupposing that he's going to be the nominee. I mean, you're not giving me any credit. You don't think I'm going to be the nominee? Just because he's I signed the, the front runner right now by Look, I'm pledging, a lot. Well, it's okay. He wasn't the front runner at this time. Uh, in the 2016 race in 2015. So, look, I think the beauty of this process is the voters decide who is the nominee. I've pledged to endorse the Republican nominee because that's one of the that's one of the requirements, and I like to follow rules. And that's one of the rules. And I think that's a, that's the party has a right to set that rule, and we we should follow that rule. So, if it is Donald Trump that is the, the nominee, and you're right, we don't know yet. Anything could happen. But if it was tomorrow, it looks like it would yeah. be him you are comfortable with endorsing him even though you didn't vote for him in 2016 or 2020? Look, if, if that's the case, if we're going to go down the hypothetical, and, and you know, obviously I understand that the national press loves to talk about it's a likely you know, the hypothetical. person who may not be at the debate. Well, it, whether it's likely or not, it's, 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 it's a hypothetical, and we're talking about someone else's candidacy, not my own. But, but in that event, uh, I, I am, I'm, I, and part of the reason why I'm running for president is because I am deathly afraid of Joe Biden's America. You know, Bidenomics is, 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 is uh, an economic theory where the poor are getting poorer through increased inflation, increased interest rates. It's a place where America is getting weaker on the world stage. I have a, a nine-year-old and a five-year-old. I missed my, first, my children's first day of school for the first time to campaign for president. And I did that because I'm, partly because of, of my, my abilities and my, ability, my, my feeling that I can connect with the American people. But the other part of it is my fear of what happens if Joe Biden is reelected. And that is a, a very palpable fear. He is not the same candidate that he was, uh, you know, four years ago when he said he was going to be a moderate candidate, he was going to heal the country. He's done none of that. He's gone to the extreme left, and, and our country's more divided than it's ever been. And we need someone who's going to unify our country, heal our country, and provide uh, opportunities that lean into a generational prosperity that we have in this future. Right, and I understand, but obviously, to get to Joe Biden, you would have to go through Donald Trump first since he is the front runner. But let me ask you one last question. Since we you haven't, go through all, we haven't you spoken go through all, since... All the, all, the, all the Republican nominees. That is true. There are multiple of you running, and we'll see who all is on the stage on Wednesday yeah. night. Trump has been yeah. indicted in, in Georgia just on Monday. The last time I saw you, we were in Miami when Trump was being indicted. They yeah. are... For, in Georgia, it's for his efforts to overturn the election. Can you just say tonight, do you believe that the election in Georgia was fair and was legitimate? I, I have not seen anything, uh, any evidence that leads me to believe that it was not fair. Um, I, I haven't delved into all the evidence, um, you know, but I have no reason to believe 
uh, that it's not. Uh, I do believe that the, the former president firmly believes that it was not fair. And I think that's part of the problem with some of these uh, accusations, in, including particularly the federal one. But I'm not his lawyer. I don't have to defend him. He can defend himself. But I think he's been pretty consistent and adamant about that. Well, he didn't get um, indicted and, you know, just I, because I he there, didn't there, think there, it wasn't fair, though. I mean, it was because he tried to overturn the results well, of the election. That's no, what no, the allegation no, I mean, Let me be clear. That's it, what the, the, the federal The federal about. indictment is all about the federal indictment is all about what he knew. And the federal indictment will be about what the prosecutor can prove he knew or did not know. That's what the federal indictment's about. Well, it's also about the scheme to have fake electors, to use the levers of the federal government to try to overturn the election. I mean, it's not just Donald Trump's mindset. That is obviously a part of it. Yeah, that's a part of it. And I think the other part of it is, is you know, he listened to attorneys that uh, guided him in a particular direction and whether or not that was uh, criminal or not. Do you believe that behavior was criminal? Listen, I'm not a judge and jury. He's, <laughs> I'm not the one putting him on trial. He's the one that's going to have to defend himself uh, for the charges. I'm going to focus on uh, running for president of the United States in the interim and hoping that I can connect with the American people in a way that they give me an opportunity to continue to tell my story uh, so that I can uh, become their president in uh, November in 2024. So we don't have to talk about any of these things. I don't want to be talking about impeachments and indictments for presidents or former presidents anymore. I want to be talking about the plan for America's prosperity and future. Mayor Frances Suarez, we will see if you are indeed on that debate stage Wednesday night. Thank you for joining us here on this Friday night. Thanks for having me, Kaylin. For reaction to the mayor's comments and also just the state of the 2024 race overall, we have CNN political commentator and former Obama White House senior policy advisor Ashley Allison, along with former Trump campaign advisor Jason Osborne here. Uh, what do you make of what the mayor had to say? Well, first off, I think... It's great that he's gone from one to two. I think by the time the 2032 elections come about that he may be in the double digits. But I I agree with his point that we, in, in any debate, you shouldn't be sitting there defending another candidate that's running for the same office. Which is what Ron DeSantis has been advised to do. Which is what I'm sure a number of the candidates are sitting there looking at is how do we thread that needle? And I think it's fairly easy, honestly, because there are there were, from a Republican standpoint, there were a lot of accomplishments made during Trump's tenure. Some of them Trump probably doesn't even know about, quite frankly. But you can separate the person from the policies and still defend that we want to continue to have a better economy, to lower taxes, to make businesses grow in this country, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that are different from this administration without having to defend Donald Trump and let Donald Trump be out there on his own, which is what it should be. That's the advice DeSantis is getting. I mean, does he have the toughest job on Wednesday night if Donald Trump's not up there and he's not the person that everyone can just attack in the back and forth? I mean, the next obvious idea is that people will try to dethrone DeSantis, I assume. I think they all have a tough job because they're all struggling in comparison to where Donald Trump is. If you are literally having a debate and the front runner doesn't show up, it is a telling sign that he does not consider you a serious competitor. He didn't even show up for the game. Um, I do think, though, there is an opportunity here for Republicans to distinguish themselves. And the mayor wouldn't do that in this interview. He wouldn't just say, what Donald Trump did on January 6th was wrong and take a lead. And, and I think it's wrong. And I'm going to pivot and talk about how we make this country better. And if people don't do that on Wednesday night for the debate, I don't think their polling numbers will change one bit. I think Donald Trump will come out the winner. He will do something to pivot the conversation the next day, like turn himself in and talk about how rigged the system is. And they will all be stuck in the same position 
playing Donald Trump's game rather than being a leader and playing their own game. What do, we, what do you make of the makeup of the stage if Mayor Suarez is someone on there? I mean, he was a latecomer to the race. Others are trying to qualify. Asa Hutchinson is still trying to get on that stage. It's looking to be a little bit bigger, though, than initially imagined that it would be. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I go back to the 2016 race where we had the happy hour debate and then we had the, the main stage mm-hmm. debate, right? And I don't know, when you start getting folks on the stage that are at the one and two and three and four percent, like it, it's not really helping any of the candidates. Then I think to your your question to Ashley was, DeSantis obviously is going to be the target in this. But I also think Vivek is going to be the target because Vivek is untested. If you look at the makeup of the debate stage right now, there's only five or six that have actually have any debate experience. And quite frankly, only one or two that have debate experience with multiple candidates on the stage at this level. And so you're going to find that each one of them are trying to figure out how do we put out our policies, but also how do we have that repost, you know, response that that's just witty and that will be remembered and a meme will be made out of it. And then they can capitalize on that moving forward. Yeah. I mean, how does this look? I mean, Donald Trump right now is not expected to show up. He has until Monday at nine o'clock to make that official, I guess. But our, our I mean, candidates are kind of having to prepare. Does he show up? Does he not? They're kind of prepping for two different debates, potentially. See, I don't think they should be, though. I think that you should be very clear in your vision of what you want to do as president, regardless of Donald Trump. And that has to be, I'm either going to say Donald Trump was wrong and be very clear, whether he's on the debate stage or not. But when people are trying to, well, if he's not there, I'm going to... You can attack Donald Trump without him being here and saying he's wrong and then talk about your vision. You can attack him with him being here and be very clear about your vision. I agree. I, I think, quite frankly... My guess, and I'm probably, I'm at about 30% chance that this is going to happen, but I think Donald Trump is going to turn himself in either be right before the debate or during the debate, mm-hmm. which will suck all the oxygen out of the room. And then Fox is stuck having to air the debate, whereas you and other networks are able to say, wait a minute, Donald Trump has actually just turned himself in. And then there's Tucker Carlson waiting on the steps of the courthouse, able to interview him right there. The jail is open 24-7, they said. We'll see. Jason Osborne, Ashley Allison, thank you both. With Trump's next surrender pending, we'll talk to someone who was once inside Trump world, what she makes of the situation that he's now facing. But first tonight, to the extremely powerful hurricane that is barreling toward California. It could dump a year's worth of rain in just one day. We'll get the latest next. Tonight, Southern California is preparing for what could be life-threatening flooding from Hurricane Hillary. The storm is now a powerful Category 4, churning southwest of Cabo San Lucas, lashing Mexico with strong winds and high waves. Hillary is expected to weaken slightly as it moves north, but forecasters are warning that it could dump a year's worth of rain in California, Nevada, and Arizona. A storm of this magnitude is so rare in the Pacific, it would be the first of its kind to actually hit California in almost 84 years. CNN's meteorologist Chad Myers is tracking Hillary from the CNN Weather Center. Chad, I mean, just looking at those numbers, a year's worth of rain in just a few days, what does that even look like? You know, if you're talking about the areas around the Salton Sea and and the east, kind of the east coast there, east range, you're talking about like four to six inches of rain per year total. And we're going to look at 
10 to 12. And that's all going to come downhill with massive amounts of flooding, life-threatening flooding, and likely infrastructure-destroying flash flooding, wiping out bridges, wiping out roadways, roadbeds. This is not a big wind event. This is a rain event. So here it is, 130 miles per hour. It was 145 earlier, but the Hurricane Hunter flew through and didn't find it, so they dropped it to 130. We do have tropical storm watches already in effect. Those will get bumped to tropical storm warnings probably tomorrow as the storm does get closer. But here we go, big storm in very warm water. But then it gets farther to the north, and as it gets farther to the north, it loses that warm water and it loses its wind power. It's not going to lose its rain effect. It's not going to lose all the power it can have here. These areas here, category four of four for flash flooding event. There's only 4% of the days in America with this type of purple. And 37% of all the deaths happen when we have this purple on the map of only a 4% chance there across the uh, United States. There's the heavy, heavy rainfall. It is going to be significant in many areas. And let me take you to the areas that we're most concerned with. Southern California, parts of Nevada, and also even into western parts of Arizona. But there's the Salton Sea. This is the northern part of Mexico through here, and this is Southern California. But it's those areas that don't get a lot of rain that are going to start putting rainfall on tops of mountains. You're going to see heavy rain on top of the mountain, and all of a sudden it's all going to run back down into 29 Palms, into Palm Springs. And farther to the north in the transverse range, now that's Santa Barbara all the way across back, even toward the, to the areas we're seeing here where it's such a large area. The, the topography on top of this, where all of this water is going to rush down into these cities, if you get four inches of rain even on top of that, don't even talk about 10, you're going to see flash flooding with mudslides, water through the streets, a significant rain event here across Southern California into the Salton Sea, possibly as far east as oh, maybe even Las Vegas, certainly Death Valley, an awful lot of when you put the water, when you put water up on top of these mountains here, this transverse range here, here's Redlands all the way down through, that water is going to go down those hills and into the cities. So yes, it's going to rain up here, but that rain is going to end up in cities and towns at the base of those mountains. Caitlin. Chad Myers, I know you'll be watching it closely for us. Thank you. We'll be watching that. Also ahead, she worked with Donald Trump for 18 years. What does a former Trump Organization executive make of his legal and political strategies as he is facing deadlines on both fronts? Donald Trump is facing a pair of key deadlines coming up soon. Monday, cutoff date for the first Republican debate, which right now we are told by sources he appears to be skipping Next Friday is the deadline, though, to surrender to authorities in Georgia, which legally he cannot skip. Trump has repeatedly described how he responds to challenges like this. I'm a counterpuncher. I'm a counterpuncher. I'm a counterpuncher. I hit hard, but I'm a counterpuncher. You have to understand I'm a counterpuncher. If he appears to be swinging pretty wildly these, these days, it may be because of how many people he is fighting. His list of challenges in court include Jack Smith in both Florida and Washington, D.C., Bonnie Willis in Atlanta, as well as Alvin Bragg here in Manhattan, the New York AG's lawsuit against his business, and Eugene Carroll in his continuing defamation suit. That's before you add in the nearly dozen people who are running against him for the 2024 Republican nomination, 
And the sitting president, whom, of course, he could face in the general election if he does win that nomination. Let's get straight to the source tonight. Barbara Rez ran Trump's construction operations in the 1980s and 90s. Her book is called Tower of Lies, What My 18 Years of Working with Donald Trump reveals about him. Barbara, thank you for being here tonight. I mean, it's you, great. It's great to be here. Thank you. We're so glad to have you. I mean, you did work for him for 18 years. When you look at the deadlines he's facing now, not just, you know, on the legal front, but on the political front, he's saying he's not going to show up to the debate Wednesday night. How do you look at that based on what you know about him? Well, I'm showing he why would he show up for the debate? All he can do is screw himself up. I mean, he's leading, right? And so why why put put himself at risk? I mean, I, he was bad at the other debates, in my opinion, so I'm not surprised at all that he's talking that. What I, what I find hysterical is this, this big conference he was going to have where he was going to have uh, proof of, you know, that, that everything was rigged in Georgia and he's going to be exonerated, and all of a sudden, oh, we don't need to do that because the lawyers are going to take care of that. Yeah. And I thought that was hysterical. But that's typical Did it Donald. surprise you? No. Why not? Because he's done that kind of thing before. It was all made up. There's no, obviously, there's no evidence. There's nothing. You know, he just, he came up with an idea. Let's do this. And, you know, and then people forgive him for not, oh, well, they'll believe him. You know, that was his attitude. He would tell the same lie a hundred times if he had to, but eventually people believed it. So you're not surprised by all this. You're saying you kind of saw this pattern playing out when you were working for him in the yes. 80s and 90s. Yes. I, yeah. And, and, you know, and it, it goes over a period of time. I mean, I started with him in 1980 and, and you know, pretty much finished up with him in 98 or something like that. Um, but... But I saw the development, the change in him, his, his going from being like almost human. I mean, you know, he really seemed like a, a human person. And, and now I don't think he is. I, I, I don't know. He's a sociopath. I'm, I'm no uh, psychologist or anything, but he's just he's not, he's not normal. People aren't like him. You have said that he doesn't listen to experts and that working, you know, on the Plaza Hotel, that, that he started bringing people in who, in your words, you described had zero credentials. I mean, just mentioning what you said there about whether or not he's taking his attorney's advice. I mean, what is the through line you see from from how he acted on the construction days to this? Well, you know, when I was with him, he had very few people. I think there were 10 employees at the most. And he had good people. Uh, and he, he did listen to them and he took advice and he worked with good lawyers and he did basically what they told him. I mean, of course, he was outlandish. Of course, he pissed everybody off. But but basically, he didn't go off on his own. And, you know, like he, there was no Twitter or anything like that back then. And I slowly watched the development as he became more powerful um, more full of himself, more convinced of his own genius. And he stopped, really, listening to people. He didn't follow advice unless it was the advice he told them to give him, which is another story altogether. I mean, hiring people that will tell you what you want to hear. But after a while, he, he didn't listen to anyone. I mean, when he said, I know more than the generals, I think he believed it. What do you make of... Rudy Giuliani and his relationship with Rudy Giuliani. We reported earlier this week that Giuliani is facing a lot of legal trouble and he's financial trouble as well. I mean, he's he's kind of he's cash strapped, his own attorneys say. What do you make of the fact that, you know, he goes and makes a personal appeal to Trump to pay for his legal bills and Trump rejects? I mean, he paid a small, small part of it compared to what he owes overall. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, it doesn't, that also doesn't really surprise me. I mean, you know, given, and not throwing back to 1980, 82, 84, but just over the passage of time in the 90s, I mean, he'd make promises he wouldn't keep. 
he 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 started screwing people out of money that they were owed. And you know, his his thing about suing, well, let him sue me, you know, that kind of thing. He 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 made a a, a lifestyle out of that, especially with people that really couldn't afford to play the game and be in court with him, where we dragged them out and dragged them out, appeal, motion, appeal, motion, until they finally gave up. People that were actually legitimately owed like a dollar would, would settle for as low as maybe 20 cents. You've kind of talked about how he has this strategy of being a showman, that he comes out, you know, he's got this bravado. But what do you make of now that, that it's not just a political aspect? I mean, he has real legal implications and legal exposure here in these four indictments. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't know that he uh, thinks he's improving his legal uh, standing from the point of view of the law, but he believes that he is building up his standing with his supporters, and, and he's a big press guy, you know. And you think it, his, his campaign is tied to his legal troubles? To his legal troubles? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Why do you think that? Well, for one thing, I, I mentioned before, he, do, he, he doesn't think that they can, you know, uh, indict him or put him in jail or whatever it is. You know, he's trying to avoid the trials and everything else. He thinks he's going to win and then he will be scot-free. He's going to do away with the Department of Justice and all these different things that will make him, you know, get away with it, which he always has done. He's always gotten away with things. Barbara. You worked for him for 18 years. Thank you for joining me tonight. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Up next, we have a CNN exclusive report, a close look, a fascinating close look at one of Trump's co-defendants, alleged co-conspirators, like you have not seen before, where he was on January 6th, something that he previously refused to disclose. An exclusive CNN report placing one of Donald Trump's alleged co-conspirators in the crowd on January 6th. Kenneth Cheeseborough is not a well-known name, but he is a key figure in two cases against Trump where he tried to overturn the 2020 election. Cheeseborough was indicted earlier this week in Georgia. He is one of the unindicted co-conspirators in the special counsel Jack Smith's January 6th probe. If you don't know him, he is the alleged architect of the fake elector scheme. And now we have figured out where Kenneth Cheeseborough was on January 6th, something that previously he refused to answer. It turns out he was following InfoWars host Alex Jones around the Capitol grounds. You can see his face highlighted here in the red hat. CNN's K-File was able to track his movements in photos and videos. What's not clear tonight is why he was following and seemingly recording Alex Jones. There's no indication that he actually entered the Capitol building or engaged in any violence on that day. But still, why this is remarkable is because Kenneth Cheeseborough is the only member of Trump's legal efforts who is now known to have actually been on the Capitol grounds that day. I'm joined now by Tamadaya Aganga-Williams, a senior investigative counsel for the January 6th House Select Committee. Did the committee know about this? The committee did not know about this, uh, that he was on the Capitol on that day. So I think that is, you know, we do commend the extensive work that journalists have done. I mean, frankly, when, we, when I joined the committee, part of the work that we did was follow up on the work that journalists have started from months before. So I think it's a great find and very important. And he had essentially pleaded the fifth when he had been asked where he was that day. Committee staff exact, asked him that exact question, and he did plead the fifth. Why did they ask him that question? Was that something they'd asked everyone, or did they have suspicions that maybe he was there? What was the sense behind that? 
One thing the committee always focused on was how the political coup led to the violence of that day and how that through line was connected. So it was important to always know people who were at the forefront of Donald Trump's plan to know where they were when the violence took place, and that's why I was asked. Well, and so that's why this is kind of interesting, is because he is the first person. You know, we've seen this kind of cross-section of who was actually there fanning the flames, Alex Jones, and this is someone who is involved more in the legal aspect of it, the fake electors aspect. I mean, what do you make of the fact that, that those two were seemingly combined on that day? I think those two have always been combined. And I think that's an important takeaway. What Donald Trump started after the election and what happened on the 6th That is one story. There are not two separate stories. And I think what the video shows us is that exact point. The political coup created the fertile ground for what happened and the violence that took place. Donald Trump, with his words of incitement, created again the ground of what took place on on the 6th. Donald Trump was the person who first, with his tweet on December 19th, be there and be wild. He was the one who announced the rally on the 6th. All of it is connected, and that's what that video also uh, shows. Yeah, he said, we'll be wild. I mean, how do prosecutors now use this potentially as evidence? Could they? I mean, Cheeseboro is in, indicted in Georgia, and that and that indictment, those charges there, he's unindicted in Jack Smith's case, but the only person indicted there is Trump. I think in the Jack Smith case, it could potentially be evidence to flip someone like him. I'm sure Jack Smith is looking for ways that he can get cooperators. That's what prosecutors always want. Here, showing Cheeseboro on the Capitol grounds, trespassing, that's another way that prosecutors could put pressure on him to cooperate. Yeah. We don't know that he actually went in the building, but if if he were to potentially mount some kind of defense, oh, I was just providing legal advice to clients, I was doing this, I mean, would this video that KFAL has uncovered uh, undercut that? Well, I, you know, it's part of the story, but I think prosecutors would probably have to draw a line there. I think the evidence of what he did but the fake electric scheme would probably be treated independent than what happened on the 6th. So I think I think it's part of the story, but I think as far as in the courtroom, that evidence might be slightly distinct. Yeah. All right, Timmy Dio, thank you for breaking all that down. Thank you so much. And also tonight, we are keeping a close eye on what is happening in Hawaii. We have now learned that the military has deployed forensic anthropologists to gather and identify human remains after the horrific wildfire on Maui. CNN has also obtained letters this evening that allege a Hawaiian state agency may have delayed diverting water to nearby reservoirs when the fire first broke out. These letters were previously reported by two local outlets. We have now confirmed them. But what isn't clear tonight is whether or not rerouting that water faster would have made a big enough difference, given just, of course, how quickly we know these flames spread. State officials are investigating their response to that disaster. It is now claimed at least 111 lives, though we have had warnings from officials. They do expect it to grow as a 1,000 or more people could still be missing tonight. We'll keep you updated on that, of course. Also, the legal efforts in that front. Next week, Trump, Rudy Giuliani, and Mark Meadows are among the 19 people indicted in Georgia who now must turn themselves in. They'll be booked into a notorious jail known for its deplorable conditions. The Rice Street Jail even made rap lyrics. What they can expect next. Donald Trump and his 18 co-defendants have exactly one week from today to turn themselves in at Georgia's Fulton County Jail. Local officials have vowed to treat the former president like any other defendant and have standard operating procedure. Tonight, sources tell CNN's team that, or tell CNN that Trump's team has already been in contact with the district attorney's office about the conditions, the logistics, what that surrender 
is going to look like. Of course, even though Trump's time spent waiting for fingerprints and any potential mugshot, we don't yet know whether or not he'll have one, will likely be expedited. The former president is going to be booked at one of the most notorious facilities in the country. The conditions, sometimes so egregious that the Justice Department has had to launch a civil rights investigation after an inmate was found dead, covered in lice and filth. And according to my next guest reporting, that is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to this jail, as the inmates regularly contend with violence, overcrowding, and sexual assault. Joining me now is George Cheedy, a journalist for the Atlanta Objective. George, uh, of course, we'll get into what happened with you on Monday. You were there to potentially testify before this indictment came down. But let's talk about this jail first and what this is going to look like, not just for Donald Trump, but also for these 18 other co-defendants. I mean, what are they going to be walking into as they are expected to turn themselves in over the coming days? So believe it or not, that's not entirely certain right now. Uh, my last word from the both the jail and from the court system is that they're still working it out, uh, in part because there's a Secret Service detail that has to be engaged through all of this. So there's, there's some negotiating. I mean, normally you'd walk in, I mean, and it's fairly typical. You get your mugshot taken, get weighed. There's a medical examination and a sort of a, a walkthrough of what you can expect. And, and then uh, you're either held or arraigned. Um, it's not sure. We're not sure what's going to happen with Donald Trump. Well, it's not just Donald Trump. I mean, maybe we've seen in other places where he's been indicted, it's, it's kind of been an expedited situation, easy in, easy out. But there are 18 other people that are going to be coming in. I mean, Mark Meadows, Sidney Powell, Rudy Giuliani. I mean, are we going to potentially see mugshots in the standard process for, for those defendants, do you believe? I think that you should expect that. I think that we should expect to see an array of 19 mugshots all taken by the same person and probably more or less at the same time. I think they're likely to clear a space so that this could get done because it's a media circus uh, so that they could get those folks out of the way so that the regular processing could continue. Is your sense that Trump will have to take a, get a mugshot? Absolutely. I, I would bet money on it right now. That's what uh, you're hearing. Because I know, the, I know the sheriff. He wants to take that mugshot. I wouldn't be surprised if he did it himself. So when the sheriff says that, that Trump will be treated like any other defendant, you really believe that he will be treated like any other defendant here? I think in terms of the process, like how... You know, getting a mugshot, uh, getting weighed, I think so, yes. Um, and I think it's because the sheriff really believes that, you know, everybody should be treated equally before the law. Yeah, you've, you've done extensive reporting on the Fulton County Jail. I mean, just today you were reporting on another death that happened there. I mean, can you just kind of describe for someone who hasn't been to Atlanta, who has never been to Rice Street, what it is, what it looks like, you know, what the conditions are at the actual jail itself? So the, the jail, multi-level jail, uh, much of it is given over to medical facilities uh, that are, uh, frankly, substandard. Uh, the medical service provider essentially quit and had to be dragged back into service because they believed it was too unsafe for them to operate. Uh, we're talking about a place where inmates will literally dig through the walls from one jail cell or one jail block to another in order to go and stab someone. Um, the, the sheriff at one point last year took multiple wheelbarrows of homemade shanks out of that jail after being found and brought them to the county commission in order to ask for more money and resources. I mean, the, given the fact that it's going to be the 
such a high place of such high profile, you know, arrests that are happening this week. I mean, how did the conditions there get to this point? So I think a lot of this has to do uh, with the general neglect of the criminal justice system and the jail system in general. Uh, but the pandemic made things worse. Mm-hmm. Um, the courts shut down, uh, trials anyway. And so you started to see this increasing backlog of people who were stuffed in the jail with nowhere to go because the trial dates weren't coming up. Um, to this, you add um, just the pandemic problems of uh, violence in the city. Uh, we had a tremendous, we had a 60% increase in homicides in the city of Atlanta during the pandemic. That's starting to come down. Uh, so you end up with an overcrowded jail, and a jail that's got a lot of folks who are, have, uh, are accused of violence. The problem is you also have a, a jail that's filled with people who have mental health problems, who are there for relatively petty crimes, like shoplifting, criminal trespass, which is, you could be graffiti, frankly, uh, is 20% of the folks who are there. George Cheedy, we have a lot more questions for you. We're out of time, unfortunately, but we'll have you back, uh, of course, to talk about what your waiting time was like on Monday. George Cheedy, thank you for being here tonight. Anytime. Speaking of Atlanta, the 34-year-old judge who was assigned to Trump's case there is a rising star in legal circles. He also has a hidden talent, and there is video of it. We'll show you next. The judge now overseeing the massive racketeering case against former President Donald Trump and 18 co-defendants has an impressive resume. At 34 years old, Scott McAfee is a Superior Court judge, award-winning prosecutor, and a former state inspector general in Georgia. But as it turns out, he is also a gifted musician. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution uncovered this video of the judge back in high school, uh, not that long ago for him, rocking out to the star-spangled banner in the vein of Jimi Hendrix. And just like Hendrix played the guitar with his teeth, McAfee did the same with his electric cello. The crowd was so impressed that someone even in the audience even yelled for him to take off his shirt. Thank you so much for joining me tonight and every night this week. CNN Primetime with Abby Phillips starts right now. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.